0: First of all, then, I urge entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus Who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony at the proper time and for this I was appointed to preach our father we pause on this Memorial Day weekend thanking you for the men and women in our country over the decades and centuries who have given the ultimate price that we might enjoy freedoms as Americans and thank you for those who serve and who have served, who are with us today. Your word teaches that their service is a deterrent against evil. And we pray for our commander in chief. Father, it appears we have an Ahab and a Jezebel that you've laid over us, who are affirming perversion, the mutilation of little children, Abortion of babies in the womb. God, if you could save a Manasseh, you could save our president. We pray that you might, in your mercy. In the interim, we know our job as believers has not changed, whatever the circumstances may be. Your commission is the same until the end of the age. And so help us this morning as your people, as we open your word, to have open hearts that we might be responsive to the truth. Spirit of God, I pray for everyone who would hear this message, who is not saved, that you would do that unique work that only you can accomplish. So please help me, fill me, anoint me for the glory of Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Acts chapter 2? We have finished a recent series called God's Prophetic Schedule. We did 31 messages. And God willing, before summer's end, we'll begin a brand new book of the Bible. But in the interim, there are some messages God has put on my heart that I want to address. This morning, I want to address the subject, as you can see there in your note-taking outline in the bulletin, the church God founded. Acts chapter two represents a turning point in the life of the church. God said to Adam and Eve, from any tree in the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. The moment they disobeyed God, they died. They died on the inside spiritually, they began to die on the outside physically, and if the problem's not solved before we leave this life, the Bible teaches we'll die eternally. It's also called the second death. But the good news is because of the cross, what was lost in Eden has been reestablished on the day of Pentecost. And so in Acts 2, we find here the birthday of the church. And it's an important day in the history of the church because here are people who are transformed from the inside out in the midst of a corrupt and a pagan culture. They see thousands of people converted. They didn't have the buildings, the electronics, or any of the bells and whistles that we think are important, but they had God the Holy Spirit living in them. Remember in Acts chapter one and verse four, Jesus said right before his ascension, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the father promised. The father promised by the Old Testament prophets a new covenant. And he told them, don't even try to go out and win anyone to Jesus until that promise is fulfilled. Jesus said, I will build my church. He did not say that we would build his church, but he would build his church, and he does that through spirit-filled believers. And so there on the Mount of Olives, right before the ascension, he said, behold, and I am sending you forth. I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city, the city of Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. So here they are, They're waiting in this house located very close to the Temple Mount, and they're waiting for what Jesus told them to wait for. And let me just say parenthetically, it would not only be disobedient, it would be sheer foolishness to try to go do something this week for Jesus, unless you are indwelt by the Spirit and unless you are filled with the Spirit. If you want to do anything that's spiritual, that's lasting, that's worthwhile, that will make a difference for eternity, And it's essential that you are indwelt, born again, and not just indwelt, but filled with the Spirit. And of course, this is the day of Pentecost. This is one of seven Moedim, seven feasts that God gave, and a schedule. And those seven feasts are a picture of both the work and ministry of the first and second coming of the Messiah. It's not by accident that on this particular year, Jesus died on Friday, on Passover, Now, Passover, just like Pentecost, doesn't always fall on the same day, but it did on this particular year in the sovereignty of God because he wants to underscore, among other things, Sunday. Remember, they are on a lunar calendar, and so the Jewish people earlier this week celebrated Pentecost, or Shavuot, as they call it. Remember, there were Hellenistic-speaking Jews. They spoke Greek, and Pentecost means 50. The word Shavuot in Hebrew means weeks. And so Jesus died on Passover. He was buried in the tomb on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He sat there all day Saturday in that grave. Remember, leaven is emblematic of sin. And the sinless Son of God was in the tomb on Saturday. On Sunday, the Feast of Firstfruits, he came out of the grave. He uh, then uh, walked on the earth for 40-some days, giving many convincing proofs that he is indeed the Lord, And then he ascended to heaven. He told them to wait. And 10 days later, they're in this room next to the Temple Mount. And the Spirit of God comes there on Pentecost. And so, Passover, he's dead. Eleven bread, he's in the grave. Raised on Sunday, the Feast of First Fruits. 50 days later, on Sunday, the Spirit of God comes. And that's why we're not meeting on Saturday under the Old Covenant. We're meeting under the New Covenant dictate on the first day of the week. Paul will say, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us, and indeed he is. And so what took place on Pentecost was life-changing. And we want to understand what took place because it's a snapshot of a healthy church. I don't want to be a part of a dead church that's doing nothing and going nowhere. That's just gathering. I don't know about you, but I wanna be a part where God can look down from heaven and say, I like that church. He smiles at that church. His blessing is on that church. So what does that look like? Well, God gave us some non-negotiables that I want us to think about. We're gonna look at the whole chapter. We're gonna focus on the verses listed there on your sermon outline. But to give some context, we're going to look at the entire chapter Pretty much, we're going to begin reading this morning in verse 32, Acts chapter 2. Follow along. Peter is preaching and he boldly says, This Jesus, God raised up, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received His word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the Apostles' teaching and to fellowship. To the breaking of bread and to prayer so let's see if we can discern what it is that makes a church alive victorious growing a church that god can bless there in your note taking outline i want to underscore three truths three characteristics that was true of the church on its birthday there are many churches in the new testament that we don't want to be like we don't want to be like say the church at corinth except for the few positive aspects that they were known for. We want to be like the church as it was founded on the birthday. And remember, the church is not just a mass of people, it's made up of individuals. So we're not just simply asking, what is Community Bible Church like? We're asking, what am I like? Because we are the sum of the members. First, the church God founded had spiritual power. On the day of Pentecost, Jesus had promised the Spirit of God would come, and he came to indwell his people just as he promised. God said he would take their heart of stone, and he would make it into a heart of flesh. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the prophets speak of this new covenant that could not happen until the Messiah came, died, bled, paid for sin so that we could be imputed with God's righteousness, credited with the righteousness of Christ such that we could be indwelt by the Spirit of God. Remember, under the old covenant, God had a temple for his people to go to. Under the new covenant, we are the temple of the living God. And so I want you to see how this church that God founded had spiritual power. Three truths are underscored. First, his spiritual power came with audible evidence. It came with audible evidence. Notice now verses 1 and 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There was an echoing sound, a loud violent rushing wind, maybe like the sound of a tornado or a hurricane. And of course, what gave this noise marks from heaven is that while the noise was there, it was like the noise of a strong wind the wind itself was not there. This was a miracle. It would be like cranking up an F-35 jet and you can hear the incredible noise, but there's no wind coming from the, uh, from the jet engines. So there's this violent sound. It's a simile. It's like. So it's not an actual wind. It's like a wind in terms of its sound. And God does this for a reason. Remember, this is Pentecost, Deuteronomy 16, 16, one of three required feasts that any pious, observant Jew would... Acknowledge, And so they would go to Jerusalem. And so upwards of 2 million people would come to the city of Jerusalem. And so God created this noise. And it's like, wow, what's that? And they are drawn to the noise because God wants them to be drawn to hearing the gospel. So there's audible evidence. Secondly, I want you to notice from verse 3 that there is visible evidence. His spiritual power came with visible evidence. Look now, if you will, at verse 3. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, or like fire, again it's a simile, tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. So maybe this ball of fire came down, or maybe the pillar of fire, like in the Old Testament, appeared, and then it was distributed. And there were like flames of tongues resting on each person. We don't know if they rested in their lap or over their heads like birthday candles. But there was this miracle flame. And again, it's fire like fire. It's similarly, it couldn't burn you like the wind that was assimilated. There was no moving air, but there were similarities. And again, this is one of the aspects of the Spirit. He is deemed in Scripture like fire. And fire has a purifying work. And the fact that the church would be indwelt by the Spirit of God would purify and change their lives. Third, not only was his presence confirmed audibly and visibly, his spiritual power came with linguistic evidence, with linguistic evidence. They heard something on this day, they saw something, and they said something. And so that the fire is not shaped like a hand or a scroll, but like a tongue is important because it shouts, communicate. Go tell a lost world about the forgiveness And that's why God gave you the Spirit, to equip you. Remember, he said, don't go out and try to win the first person until the Spirit came. And if you're born again, you have the Spirit. But equally, and this is next week's message, and it's very important, that you be filled with the Spirit. Too many Christians today who are indwelt but who are not filled. They come here, they're apathetic, they're bored, they have no hunger for the things of God. It's because they're out of fellowship with God. And they wonder why god is not using them as he wants to use them and so there was a miracle here as these tongues came by the way let me ask you a question which group would this represent erratic jerking on the ground uncontrollable laughter being slain in the spirit you know passing out shaking and speaking prophetic utterances in so-called tongues what group would that be true of? You might say, well, charismatic Christians or Pentecostal Christians or the Word of Faith movement or the New Apostolic Reformation movement. And you would certainly be right, but it would be equally correct to say Hinduism. Kundalini Hinduism. When I was in New Delhi, I witnessed this. People who had these exact same manifestations that so-called Christians today have. And so what we see, though, here in the book of Acts is very different from what supposedly reappeared around 1900. Drastically different. Look at verse 4, if you will. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now here's a map. Remember, it's Pentecost, weeks The 50th day, a Jew would be required to come. Some actually stayed from Pentecost all the way until the 50th day, because some came great distances. And here are the 15 nations that are represented. And of course, there's this incredible noise. People come from all over the city. And they hear these Galileans, 120 Galileans, who know kind of a Pigeon Aramaic, kind of hicks of sorts in many people's eyes. And they speak glossolalia, a real language, and not only a language, they speak a dialectos, a dialect within a language. Here's the languages that were spoken. Parthian, Median, Elam, Mesopotamian, Cappadocian, Pontus, Asian, Phrygian, Greek, Pamphylian, Egyptian, Libyan, Latin, Cretan, Arabic. They're listed there in Acts 1, beginning in verse 9. 15 different languages. And so it would be like for me as, say, an English person. I don't really know Chinese except a few greetings and a thank you and here and there a word from my trips there. But I would be able to speak perfect Chinese, but not just Chinese, say Mandarin Chinese, a dialect within Chinese. And that's what these people were doing. That was the miracle of Pentecost. Now, there are Christians today who think we ought to try to repeat Pentecost, but to repeat Pentecost, you would have to have the noise, you would have to have the literal tongues of fire, and you you, you can't repeat it. You can no more repeat Pentecost than you can repeat Bethlehem or Calvary. It's a historical event that took place, but you can enjoy it. Bethlehem was indeed God with us. Calvary was God for us. Pentecost is God in us. God the Spirit indwelling in us. And it can be just as real in your life as you are indwelt and filled with the Spirit as it was for these believers. His power, his life-changing ability to allow you to walk with Christ is available to us today. And so, listen, I can't repeat Calvary, but I can enjoy the benefits of Calvary. And I can't repeat Pentecost but I can enjoy the benefits of Pentecost. And so that's what I want you to see. It's called the baptism of the spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Paul assumes that every Christian has been baptized. Listen to these words. For by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We're all made to drink of one spirit. Baptism of the spirit has nothing to do with water. It is that day in which you call upon Christ in faith to save you, and he identifies you. He makes you a part of a group of people called the church. The church is not an organization, though it is organized. It's a living organism. It's called the body of Christ. And so the day you receive Christ, you receive the baptism of the Spirit. Though we are baptized with the Spirit, and we're never commanded to be baptized with the Spirit once we're saved, we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Because while he may be living in you, he wants to be empowering you. He may be present, but he's not president. He wants to have full reign in your life. And again, this is why Jesus commanded them in Acts 1-4, do not leave Jerusalem until the Spirit comes, because he is the one who's going to equip you for ministry. And so a healthy church has spiritual Secondly, on your outline, I want you to see that the church God founded had spiritual preaching. Not just spiritual power, but spiritual preaching. And there are two dimensions of spiritual preaching that are underscored here for us. First, spiritual preaching is Bible-based. True spiritual preaching is Bible-based. Now, sadly, in a lot of churches, there's preaching, but it's not spiritual preaching. There may be even a passage of scripture that is read, but there's no interaction with the text. Person goes on and he tells a lot of stories and interesting things, but he's not teaching the word of God. And it's the word of God that is life-changing. God's not interested, in my opinion, he's interested in what he's written. And that is what we are to preach. And so what we find here is a model for spiritual preaching, what we typically refer to as expository preaching. I remember in verse 14, Peter stands up, and he preaches this, uh, this sermon, and an honest question comes in verse, chapter, uh, verse 2 and verse 12. They see this miracle of Pentecost, 120 people coming out who knew one language, and now they're speaking all these different languages. And the people ask, what does this mean? That's the first question. The second question that's asked when the 120 come out is not really an honest question. It's what I might call a smokescreen question. That's when an unbeliever throws a question at you to try to give you a reason why he's right for not believing. And so they mock in verse 13 and they say they are full of sweet wine. So to answer these two questions in verses 16 to 21, Peter goes right to the Bible and he quotes the prophet Joel. Remember in the early church for nearly a decade, they didn't open Matthew or Revelation or Ephesians. All they had was the Old Testament scriptures because the New Testament was going to be written. And that's why I typically go from an Old Testament to a New Testament book, because the New Testament is also about Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable. And so he quotes this prophet who lives 800 years before Christ. Notice Peter's use of the Bible in verse 16 when he states, but this, what you're witnessing, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And then in verse 25, if you'll notice, He said, for David says of him, and he quotes Psalm 16, and then drop down to verse 34. He again tells us that David said, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, and then he quotes Psalm 116, and as we're going to see in a moment, he not only quotes the scripture, he interacts with the scripture, he gives the sense of meaning behind it, and what we find here is just a snippet of his sermon. Uh, If you read his sermon, it would take all of about a minute. Peter preached longer than I did, I promise you. Uh, But nonetheless, in fact, this scripture will affirm before we're done, he spoke a whole lot more than what's written here. But God gives us enough to know that this is a model for expository preaching, that it is Bible-based. Secondly, spiritual preaching will be Christ-centered. Not only is it Bible-based, it is Christ-centered. So when Peter stands up to preach on the day of Pentecost and at other times, he didn't preach philosophy or world events or politics, unless, of course, those politics interfaced with moral issues concerning God's plans and purposes. No central to what Peter and the apostles and all the early church pastors preached was Christ Jesus and him crucified. So unlike the seeker-sensitive, self-help me-centered preaching of our day. Joel Osteen to make you feel good. He says you shouldn't speak about sin. Creflo Dollar and T.D. they preach to make you rich. Kenneth Copeland to make you healthy. It's all me-centered. No, they preach Jesus and him crucified. And while a text of scripture may be about you, ultimately it comes back to him. It comes back to Christ for his glory, for his honor. And our obedience to him. So it's not a man-centered message. It's a Christ-centered message. And I want you to see that beginning in verse 22. First, he speaks about the manner of Christ's life. The manner of his life. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you, circle those words to you, by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, circle your myths, just as you yourselves know. Peter here is speaking about the incarnation. And of course, at least at this time in the history of Israel, they understood that the Messiah would not simply be a man. He would not simply be a prophet. He would not simply be a king. He would not simply be a religious leader or another teacher, though he is all of the above. He would be the God-man. And so, for instance, Isaiah chapter 9 The prophet who lives 700 years before Jesus comes to Bethlehem, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who walk in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And then in verse 6 of that chapter, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace." A child is going to be born, but no normal child. This child, among other titles, will be called Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Well, how on earth could you identify such a child? Well, among the 330-plus prophecies, Dr. Walverd, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, said there were 333 that all dealt with the first coming of the Messiah. Among those prophecies that he fulfilled, here's some that Isaiah spoke of, Isaiah 35. He says, when Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. So here's Peter, he says, when Messiah comes, he came as a man attested to you, how? By God, with miracles and wonders and signs. Now, there are certain miracles that other, other people did. And miracles, by the way, contrary to our dear Pentecostal friends, have never been consistent through the age of the church. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph never did a miracle. The first miracles God did through an individual was through Moses and Joshua. Hundreds of years went by. No one did a miracle until another major changing point in Israel's history, and God brought the prophet Elijah and Elisha. Scores of other prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel witnessed miracles, never did a miracle. These prophets never did a miracle. In fact, another set of miracles are not done until the Messiah himself comes. But among the miracles that Jesus did, some of them were unique to him that no one else had ever done. And so Matthew 11 and verse 5 reminds us of that. He said, the blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear." The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And so Matthew is quoting Isaiah's prophecy and reminding us that that was a fulfillment of it. So Jesus had the credentials that he is indeed and forever will be the son of God. And so here in verse 22, he's saying, listen, God demonstrated to you to you who are present here today, to to you who didn't see it secondhand, but you witnessed it firsthand before your own eyes, the very miracles that Jesus did. So he's preaching on the manner of his life, but he goes on to preach on the meaning of his death. Peter now goes on to indict them that God who had affirmed that Jesus is Lord, nonetheless, they crucified him. Look at verse 23. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. May I remind you that Jesus did not die accidentally. He did not die simply because men were mad at him. He did not die a martyr's death. He died according to the preordained plan and foreknowledge of God. The death of Christ for your sin and my sin was planned in eternity past. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, and it was performed under the sovereign hand of a God who was in absolute control. And we studied recently on Palm Sunday that truth from John 18. John 18. When they came to arrest Jesus, Mark said a multitude arrested him. Matthew said a great multitude. John said a battalion. What size battalion? 600 or 1,000. A battalion led by a chiliarchus, a leader of 1,000 men, plus all the religious hoi polloi. After he had been identified to the commander through the kiss, Jesus said, whom do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene. He says, Yahweh. And when he says that, they all fall backwards. By the power of his word he put a 1,000 plus people on their backs. Remember Jesus said, no one will take my life away from me, I will give it. I have power to lay it down, I have power to bring it back up again. And so as we often say as preachers, it was not those nails that held him to the cross, it was his love. He chose to give himself, why? Because the wages of sin is death. Sin demands that death be enacted. And indeed, death will come. You will either receive the one who made a payment for your sin, or you will pay for your sin yourself, but your sin will never be overlooked. God is too holy to overlook our sin. And that's why he sent Jesus, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This is what Isaiah said. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. It's what we call in Hebrew a prophetic past tense. When you want to underscore a truth that is so certain to happen, you put the future in the past like it's already happened. Now, I know a lot of lost-lying liberal preachers in our day that say, well, Jesus came to set an example for us. He didn't come to simply set an example for us. He came to die for you. Peter said it this way in his first epistle. Not only did he die according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, he states it this way. For Christ also died for sins once for all, once for all time. The just, that's him for us, the unjust, for sinners. Why? That he might bring us to God And so sin has to be paid for, and God demonstrated His great love by sending His Son to do that for us. And may I say to every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, everyone who's listening on one of our campuses or live streaming, your sin will be either pardoned in Christ or it will be punished in hell, but it will never, ever, ever be overlooked so God as an infinite person in a finite period of time accomplished what you and I as finite people would take an eternity to pull off in the place called the lake of fire. Some people say well God is too good to punish sin. No, they have it backwards. God is too good not to punish sin. For a judge or a jury to let a knowingly guilty man go man go free, they become the criminals. And if God were to allow sinners to go free without justice being satisfied, he would topple from his throne of righteousness and holiness. But God demonstrates his own love towards you, and that while we are yet sinners, while we deserve death, Christ died for us. So here is a man, stands up on the birthday of the church, he speaks on the manner of his life, the meaning of his death, then he speaks on the miracle of his resurrection, Notice if you will now, verse 24, and God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Major question, why was it impossible for Jesus to be held in the power of death? For the simple reason he never sinned. The wages of sin is death, permanent, forever death. But Jesus never sinned. And so he was declared, it's a Greek word, you can shout, he was announced with power to be the son of God, how, by the resurrection from the dead. Death could not hold him because he never sinned. And so the proof that he is Lord is his resurrection. And central to the message of the early church was the resurrection of Christ. And so my purpose this morning is not to demonstrate that. I have messages on it. But may I remind you, this is 2023, Anno Domini. In the year of the Lord, it is now B.C. A.D. Some people say, well, it's before the common era and after the common era, it's the same problem. <laughs> Someone split time down the middle and his name is Jesus. And so Paul, he reminds the Corinthians, how could you truly identify who the Messiah might be? And so he tells him, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for your sins, According to the scriptures, according to the Old Testament. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And so the Old Testament prophets said, look, you'll know it's Messiah because not only will he be pierced through for your iniquities, not only will he die in a tree, but on the third day he will rise from the dead. And so listen, that legitimized his claim. If I said to you this morning, I, Karl Brogy, the, am the Messiah... I'm the creator of the world. The elders would have a meeting immediately after this message, and I would be fired, and rightly so. Jesus was a real human just like you, hands and feet and eyes and noses and hair and skin. Yet he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He claimed to be God in human flesh. How could that claim be substantiated? Through the resurrection. For he was raised in the third day. Now, notice the, the, the quotation beginning in verse 25. He's quoting David. If you're new to the Bible, you'll see the change in the typeset that tells you this is an Old Testament quotation. For David says of him, of the Messiah, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad. And my tongue exulted, moreover my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter doesn't just read the scripture, he interacts with the scripture. And again, here's a man who models what we call expository preaching, and that is the void in the church today. Person spoke to me yesterday, they were living in Texas. I'm I'm looking for a church that just will open the scriptures and explain it. I've gone to over a dozen and I can't find any. That's why we're living in days of apostasy. That's why one of the largest churches in Atlanta baptized two Sundays ago through one of his women preachers, supposedly a man who became a woman and was unrepentant and baptized him in Andy Stanley's church. Or him, her, whatever it is. (laughs) We're living in days of apostasy because we have an ignorant church. People say, well, you know, they go off to college and they they run from the Lord. That's because they're not converted. They're pseudo-Christians, they're fake Christians, they're cardboard Christians. You cannot lose something when it is genuine. And so here is a man, he, he quotes the scripture, then he explains the scripture. Look at verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up to which we are all witnesses. We sing it every Resurrection Sunday. Death could not hold and pray, Jesus my Lord. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Listen, I love it here are these people. The blood is hardly dry on their hands. 53 days earlier they said, Let him be crucified. And now they're convicted to the core. The the one they hung on the cross, the one whose blood they asked for, was according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So notice, look at verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? I mean, these people are convicted of the core. You contrast that with the feel-good, seeker-sensitive sermons of today that call people to account for absolutely nothing. People say what I preach is unkind. No, it's kind. Because unless people see their sin, they don't have a need for a savior. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. i can tell you here's peter he preached a christ-centered message he preached in the manner of his life the meaning of his death he preached in the miracle of his resurrection i want you to also say he preached in the majesty of his reign look at verse 33 now therefore having been exalted to the right hand of god and having received from the father the promise of the holy spirit he has poured forth this which you both see and hear for it was not david Who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, this interplay within the Trinity, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let me ask you a question Who is the head of Community Bible Church? It is certainly not some pope. It is certainly not the elder board of this church, and it is certainly not this pastor. The head of this church is Jesus Christ, who is leading His church according to His inerrant and infallible word. And I'm here to say that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. People say, well, we need to make Jesus Lord. I hate to tell them they're too late god has already made them lord in christ and community bible church is owned and operated by jesus he purchased this church with his own blood and he wants this church with a christ-centered message to reach out to a lost world to be to represent him well look there are churches all across america that are nothing more than social clubs Talked to a man yesterday. He said, I didn't really like your church. I said, what do you like? He said, well, I went to a church the week before, and we had coffee and donuts during the service, and it seemed a little more relaxed. I said, look, I'm not here to drink coffee and donuts. We'll do that in our adult Bible fellowships and out there. We're here to worship the living God. We're here to give him our full attention. And so, every church is to be a Christ-centered church that is preaching a sinless savior, that's preaching a substitutionary death, one who literally, physically, actually came out of the grave, who walked on the earth for another 40 days, who ascended into heaven, who is coming back to judge the living and the dead, and his name is Jesus. That's spiritual preaching. Third, beyond spiritual power and spiritual preaching, the church God founded has a spiritual people. It has a spiritual people. Look, if you will, now, beginning in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and Peter, and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children. And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words, so you know this was not the whole sermon. You're getting a snippet of it, as I said. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who'd received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. On the birthday of the church, 3,000 souls were saved. On the 50th day of week, centuries earlier, God gave the law. And on that day, 3,000 people died. On this day, on the birthday of the church, God showed his grace and 3,000 souls were saved. And I'm reminded from this scripture that the New Testament church, a true church, has a converted membership. They have real salvation. And sadly, in many churches, they de-emphasize. The salvation that comes exclusively through Jesus Christ. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved, as Peter will preach in his next sermon. A church advertised on their website, mocking preachers like me, you are welcome at our church no matter how many times you've been born. Hey, I'd hate to be that person and stand before a holy God denying the necessity of a second birth. You must, you must, he said it three times, you must be born from above, born a second time, born again to enter the kingdom of God. And so if a church is to be healthy, it must be spiritual and it must reflect true spirituality. And you get again a picture of it here. Notice that spiritual people will feel conviction by the Lord. Spiritual people will first feel conviction by the Lord. Notice now, if you will, verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Uh, how, how did that come about? Who did this? Not Peter. God the Holy Spirit did this. And he, when he comes, he will convict the world, Jesus said, of sin, righteousness and judgment. Only the Holy Spirit can bring true conviction, but the method he typically uses is a man of God preaching the word of God and the spirit of God about the Christ of God, and conviction happens. Conviction comes to the human heart. I've told you before, you cannot browbeat people into the kingdom of God. The spirit of God must show them that they're a sinner and that they need salvation. It's not like a sales job. People say, well, he'd make a good evangelist. He's good in sales. He might be the worst person to share the gospel because he's dependent on his human skill. We must be dependent on the spirit of God through us to bring the truth. Now, God doesn't shout the gospel from the rocks or it on the clouds, he uses human agents who obediently, faithfully share the message. Remember what Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Listen, when he convicts you, don't ignore that conviction because you don't draw yourself to the living God. The initiative begins with him. Listen to what Stephen warned as his Jewish brothers are ready to stone him to death, this preaching deacon who becomes the first martyr of the church. In Acts 7, he said, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Now, I have friends who speak about what they call irresistible grace. But at least in this case, as an act of their own choice, as an act of their own free will, these people, Stephen said, who came under the conviction of the Spirit, resisted God the Spirit. And I would plead with you, if you're listening to this message somewhere, don't resist the Spirit for at least three reasons. First, let me remind you that if you have interest in the things of God, if you're here today and you have an interest... That interest didn't begin with you. You say, how do you know? Because scripture reveals differently. Paul in the book of Romans quotes Psalm 14. And he says, there is none righteous. Or he says, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now that may seem contrary to your experience. And maybe you're here and you say, well, I was four or five and I seemingly had a heart from God. i tell you why you had a heart for God. Probably because of parents or grandparents who were praying for you, but the initiative didn't begin with you. You think, well, I became a Christian because I read this apologist and studied this truth and that truth, and, and I was convinced then that I needed to become a Christian. Listen, that didn't begin with you. Don't have such a self-centered testimony where you steal the glory from the living God. There's none who seeks God. There's not even one. The initiative always begins with the Lord. Paul says you're dead in your trespasses and sins, and dead men can't respond. God must grab the heart. God must stir the heart. Jesus said it this way in John 6, it is the Spirit who gives life. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it it has been granted to him from the Father. So number one, remember the interest begins with God. Number two, don't resist the Spirit of God. It would be very unwise because when he shows you your need, there can come a point where he can stop showing you your need. And then all hope will be lost. Jesus spoke in the parable of the sower where a sower goes out to sow seed and he likens it to a preacher or to a Christian sharing the word of God because we're born again not just by the spirit but by the scripture. You're born again by imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. And he speaks of one soil where the devil has given permission to snatch the seed, why? So that they may not believe and be saved. And that follows the third point. In other words, your heart can get to a point where it gets so hard Because you said no to God, God said no to you. Someone invites you to church, your heart's stirred. You know there's truth here. Your mind maybe because of your love for sin wants to deny it, but your heart of hearts know it's true. Why? Because the living God is behind his word. He calls it living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It's just like biblically, a man may say he's an atheist, but he's not. Every man knows there's a God according to scripture. There's no such thing as an agnostic. God has revealed himself through the creation, his attributes, his power, his nature, is clearly seen through what he's made. Even pagans who've never seen a Bible, they show the work of the Bible written in their hearts. All men know there's a God, and all men, whether they've seen the evidences to show the Bible is the only book God wrote, in their heart of hearts, they know it's the word of God. Why? Because it pricks the heart. It's alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And so someone invites you and you hear the scripture and your heart resists. You turn on the television, there's some preacher, can't stand it. Someone hands you a tract in a restaurant, you throw it in the basket. Someone shares their testimony of how God has changed their life and God's reaching and reaching. You say, no, 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 no. And God finally says, I'll give you your wish. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews warns today if you hear his voice, Do not harden his heart. And that's why we as Christians, we share the gospel with a sense of urgency. It's not lackadaisical. We invite people to respond, to receive Jesus as Lord. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Let me share with you one of the most terrifying verses in the New Testament. It's found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul is speaking of a coming day. He's reminding them why they were not in that day because certain things had not transpired. And so they had not misunderstood him concerning the time of the rapture and the coming day of the Lord. And so the man of sin had not yet come, the Antichrist. But when he comes, there's going to be a work of God behind him. Listen to these words, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 11. Paul wrote, for this reason... God will send upon them a diluting influence. Now, the reason that he has just stated was because they ignored the truth of the gospel. So God will send upon them a diluting influence. You say, wait a minute, pastor. Are you misquoting scripture? I'm not misquoting scripture. God will send a diluting influence. That's right. For this reason, God will send upon them a diluting influence. Why would you do that, God? So that they will believe what is false. It's getting worse. God is going to send a deluding influence that people might believe what is false. If you have the NASB with marginal notes, it gives you the literal rendering out in the Greek that they might believe the lie. Not just a lie, but the lie. The lie of all lies. When the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition comes on the scene and claims to be God Almighty. Look at the next verse. In order that, God will a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged, the ESV says condemned, the King James says damned, that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. They had the truth. How did they have it? The Spirit of God opened their eyes to the truth, but they didn't respond to his prodding. Why? Because they love their evil deeds. Yes, there will be people saved after the rapture, but not people who heard the gospel in clarity and in power. And there's too much fuzziness on that in our day, leaving people with the thought, well, you know, my dear cousin, you know, I've told him about Jesus and the rapture, and he'll put string together the truth and he'll receive Jesus then, not if he heard the gospel in clarity and in power and resisted that gospel. Because God is a judgment, just as he does today. Because they would not believe, Jesus said in John 12, the people in his day, they could not believe. Why, because he, God, hardened their heart, he, God, blinded their eyes, he, God, stopped their ears. Why, as a judgment, because they put God off and off and off and off and off. You don't draw yourself to God. My spirit will not always strive with men. He wrote that in the first book of the Bible. And yes, there will be people saved through the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, through the two witnesses, the greatest revival in the history of the world, of people who had never heard the gospel. And this gospel, the kingdom, shall then go out to the whole world. That happens during the tribulation. And then the second coming, the end, will happen And so because they took pleasure in wickedness. So verse 10 says they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. Motivated by the fact that here they took pleasure in wickedness. And so God does what? He sends a deluding influence. So this is not surely an intellectual problem. It's a spiritual problem. They took pleasure in sin. Very often when sometimes you share the gospel. The real problem is that there's a love of sin going on in the heart. Maybe they're living with someone to whom they're not married. Maybe they feed on pornography. Maybe they feed on drug or alcohol. Or maybe they've done none of those things. But they are the master of their own destiny. And they don't want to submit to Jesus as Lord. I want my sin, therefore I do not want the truth. And then God ultimately gives you your wish. But here were people who came under the conviction of the Spirit. Secondly, I want you to notice that spiritual people will experience conversion to the Lord. Not just conviction, but conversion. So I want you to notice in verse 37, the question that the people ask. And then the answer Peter gives in verse 38. They ask, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. Now sometimes when people hear the word repent, they think it means feeling sorry or Crying for their behavior over one's sin or feeling really, really guilty or admitting that they are a sinner. But contrary to popular belief, the word repent does not mean to feel sorry. Literally, the Greek verb metaneto means to change your mind. Now, it may involve sorrow, and so Paul can speak of a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. But the word repent is not a feeling word. It is an action word. Jesus told people in his day to make a change of mind. The very first words recorded out of the gospels that Jesus spoke, the very first word was repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so repentance is obviously important. So is repentance something that we do before we can come to God? And the answer is yes and no. Please understand that repentance is not a work that you do. It's not like you clean up your act in order to come to Christ. You can't clean up your act. Jesus said, the man who sins becomes a slave to sin. Now, if you're in California, and I ask you to come to South Carolina, I do not need to say to you, we'll leave California to come to South Carolina. You're coming to South Carolina means you're leaving California, when I invite you to Jesus Christ, if it is genuine belief, you will leave your sin. You will change your mind. You will change your mind. And for different people, repentance is used in different ways in the New Testament. Of course, in this context, what did they need to repent of? They said Jesus was just a man. And Peter just demonstrated from their own scriptures, he's not simply a man, he is Lord. Some people need to respond, repent of their self-righteousness. They think they're good enough to get into heaven. And so understand repentance is not a work we do, but it does produce a work. It produces a change. And so John the Baptist can say, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Paul can say in Acts 26, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. And for this same reason, is, he's is calling these people to repent, to change their mind. So understand, conviction comes by the spirit, but just because you're convicted doesn't necessarily mean you are converted. You can have conviction without conversion. Do you remember Felix? We studied the governor a few weeks back in Acts 24. I spoke on the subject of procrastination. And Paul said this to him, and as he was discussing righteousness, self control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Here was a man who was under deep conviction, but he didn't repent. You can have conviction without repentance. For that matter, you can have confession without repentance. You remember the great pharaoh the great king of egypt plague after plague came upon him and after he had witnessed the plague of blood and the plague of frogs and the plague of insects and the plague of cattle and the plague of boils he finally says in exodus 9 i have sinned this time the lord yahweh is the righteous one and i and my people are the wicked ones that was confessional all right but it was confession without repentance. And so we read a few verses later, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart. You can have conviction without repentance. You can have confession without repentance. For that matter, you can have crying without repentance. Remember Esau who had a lust for food that superseded his love for God. And when he finally realizes what he has done and the consequences of it, he cries his eyes out, but he doesn't repent. Hebrews 12 warns us that there is to be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Crying in tears do not necessarily mean repentance. I've seen a lot of people cry and weep over the consequences of their sin, but not over the fact that they've offended a holy God. Feeling sorry for your sin will not make you a Christian. There's a lot of people who show up on Sunday morning who feel very sorry for what they did the night before. Remember the rich young ruler? He went away sad, sad, the scripture said, but he wasn't saved. And so I think to help us understand what real repentance is, let's look at the flip side. Again, on the one hand, on the day of Pentecost, the Jewish people ask the question, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent. Later on in Acts chapter 16, Paul encounters a Philippian jailer, and he asks a similar question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Now, why did he not simply say, repent, like Peter? or Why did Peter not simply say, believe, like Paul? Well, he might have just as well have said that because they are the flip side of the same coin. Think your way through this. John's gospel, why it is written. The, the, the actual purpose is stated at the end of the gospel. Many other things Jesus did in the presence of his disciples. But these were written. These miracles that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and in believing you might have life in his name. It is a gospel written, among other things, to convert people, and not once does the word repent appear in that gospel. Why? Because when you truly believe, you have genuinely changed your mind or repented. So until you say your sin is something that needs to be let go, until you say that you are the ruler of your own life, that you need to change your mind about sin, about self, and about the Savior, you have no need to listen under obediently to the gospel and to believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. So these are spiritual people, and spiritual people feel conviction. They experience conversion. Third, spiritual people will make a confession of the Lord. Again, the early church demonstrated that they were the real item and that they made a public confession of the Lord. Look now, if you will, at verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent. Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So first you are convicted, which may or may not lead to conversion. But if your conviction leads to conversion, then your conversion will lead to a confession. Now please understand, walking down the aisle of a church has never saved anyone. That's not in the truest sense the confession of faith in the New Testament. Now a gentleman came down recently and He said, I'm a man of God and uh, I just want to join the church. And I said, great. And he came to meet the pastor and he said he was 50% sure and why should God let him into heaven? And he gave kind of a works answer and what was he saying? He was saying, I was lost. When people come and they say, oh, I'm 50% sure, 75%. They're lost, why? Because in the back of their mind, they're not sure they're good enough. I've got news for them, they're not good enough. None of us are. And until God opens our eyes up to that truth, will never be born again. But listen, God has used the invitation. And how do I know if someone wants to be baptized and obey Christ? Is it osmosis? Ooh, I think there's one there who needs no. know. They come and then they're unashamed of Jesus. That's why we even ask existing Christians who've been saved and baptized to join publicly. Because it makes me wonder if they're ashamed of Christ, whether or not they really know the Lord Jesus. So the New Testament confession, of course, is baptism. And Peter said to them, repent, let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He's not denying the baptismal formula in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But here, like in Acts 19, he's underscoring Jesus. Why? Because like the folks in Acts 19 who had never heard of Jesus, these people had heard of Jesus but had crucified Jesus. In the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And many of you know, as some have ripped this verse out of context, it's become their headquarters verse to teach that baptism saves. But let's ask an important question here. When he says, let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of sin, what precisely does he mean by the word for? Does he mean in order to be forgiven? By the way, this is really only a problem in the English Bible. It's not a problem in the Greek New Testament. And it's not a problem in most, most other languages but because we can have a dual nuance on the word for, and if you're trying to do a word-for-word correspondence in terms of from Greek into English, they translate it for. Does it mean in order to be forgiven or because you're forgiven? The latter, because of forgiveness. By the way, this same little three-letter preposition is used in Luke 11 when it speaks of John the Baptist. Jesus said, the men of Nineveh, shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. Why? Because they repented at, same word we just read, for, at, or for the preaching of Jonah. And so likewise in Acts 2.38, you are baptized because of the forgiveness of your sin. Think your way through this. A man is arrested for stealing. A man is commended for bravery. One is blamed for carelessness. When one is commended for bravery, he's not given an award in order to be brave. He's given an award because he was brave. And so we are baptized for the forgiveness of sin, not in order to be forgiven, but because we are forgiven. As a public expression of our faith, the word means to submerge. You're saying my faith is in the one who died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. The gospel, the power of God to save you. Jesus said it this way, everyone therefore... Who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who's in heaven. Understand the New Testament church understood that confession to be believers baptism. And so Peter is preaching here in Acts two that if you inwardly possess the Lord, you will outwardly symbolize that that belief through baptism. Now I recognize that there are dear saints of God who have been saved who have never biblically been baptized, they've grown up in a church where they teach, well, God's making a covenant with the parents and da-da-da-da-da, and infant baptism and so forth. But I wanna just say this, and this, by the way, some people say, well, this is a secondary issue. Well, it is, and it is. It certainly is not a test of fellowship. I have a good Presbyterian friend, he's a PCA pastor, and we beg to differ, he teaches infant baptism. I, like 90% of the Christians in the world today, preach post-conversion baptism. When I go to some countries of the world, they say, where do they get this infant baptism? These are people, most of them, who've never been to seminary, they're just reading the simple texts. You've gotta be educated into that position. But you know, we can still have fellowship as pastors. But how can you say it's a secondary issue? In the sense that I don't wanna meet Jesus, having baptized infants my whole life. And the Lord says, my word was explicitly clear. I said, believe, and then be baptized. You reversed it. You started baptizing infants, later asking them to believe. Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? You can only be baptized, Philip says to the eunuch, if you have first believed. I believe with all my heart, so he didn't go to the edge of the water and sprinkle them he went down into the water and then he immersed him because immersion pictures death, burial, and resurrection and the devil wants to get that symbol removed from the church. But listen, Jesus can say he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Why? Because he's saying that if you have the genuine item, you will publicly confess him as Lord. And in my view, if someone really understands that baptism, biblical baptism, follows conversion and they are unwilling to do it, they have good reason to question whether or not they've met the living God. Why would you not want to give Jesus glory for his death, burial, and resurrection? Now anyone who says baptism saves or helps saves is a heretic. They're preaching a different gospel. It is an ordinance, it is a symbol, it follows conversion after you are saved. And so here's Peter, repent. Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And notice, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now the construction is interesting here. You'll see here this parenthesis. And in the Greek New Testament grammatically there's a parenthesis of sorts and some literal translations, interlinear translations will bring that out. And so without the intervening clause, if you'll bring up the next slide, Uh, He says, repent, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? It's not a spiritual gift. Now, when you are born again, on your spiritual birthday, God gives you an ability you didn't have before conversion. A lot of Christians don't know their spiritual gifts, much less what their spiritual gift is. And sometimes if you haven't grown, you won't know what your gift is. When you hold a newborn, they don't know if this child's going to be, you know, bent towards the intellectual realm or the mathematical realm or the athletic realm or the mechanical realm. You don't know until they grow. And the newborn baby doesn't immediately know what his spiritual gift is, but as he begins to grow, that's why we have the discovery class. They learn what their spiritual gift is, and that should be a place of focus in the body of Christ. Though we all have common responsibilities, there's a place of focus we have. But here the gift of the Holy Spirit is God the Holy Spirit himself. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. Listen to these words. In him, he's talking about Jesus. In Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Notice the order. You hear the gospel. You can't believe unless you've heard it. You respond in faith. You believe, and then you're sealed. Pentecost in some senses was unique, that the Spirit of God had not yet been given. That's why Jesus can say there was never a man greater than John born of a woman, but the person who's least in the kingdom is greater than John. Because John never lived to Pentecost, so he was one of 500 people who had a unique relationship with the Spirit of God under the old covenant. He didn't have the relationship we have. You hear, you believe, you're sealed with the Spirit. In Jesus' words, you are born again. And my friend, when you are born again, your life changes. And if your life never changes, it just means you've never ever been born again. So, salvation, we're not preaching about something, we're preaching about a person, someone. And it's not simply getting God out of heaven into man, it's getting man into heaven through a second birth from above, God wants you to be born again. You say, Pastor, I don't know what that means. You don't have to understand a whole lot, but you have to know you're a bankrupt sinner. You can do zero. That your sin is an offense to a holy God. You have to be willing to own your sin or you don't need a Savior. But if you will call upon Him, He will forgive you, He will save you, and your life will be forever changed. And if you've done that, then you should never be ashamed of it, and you should share it. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity today to study your word. I pray today for someone within the sound of my voice that the Spirit has been speaking to. I can't convince them, but you can, and they've been listening to your word, and I pray that you'd help someone in simple, childlike faith knowing that it's impossible for you to lie, to say, Lord Jesus, by your death and resurrection, save me. Now, Father, I pray for us as a church. What we are, we are only by your grace. We have much room for improvement and growth. But as we look at this model that we have studied this morning, we pray that it would not just picture us corporately, but it must picture us individually. For what this church is corporately, we know it is the composite of what we are individually. So help us to linger in your presence today, this Lord's Day, to do some self-evaluation. Search me, O God, see if there be any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. And maybe you're here and you've received Christ and you've never made it public. I want to invite you to do that today. Maybe you've been saved, but you haven't been baptized since you've been saved. You were baptized as an infant. Or maybe even as an adult before you understood the gospel. Put your baptism on the right side of your conversion. If you've been saved and baptized and you need a church home, we want to invite you to come today and be a part of this church. So as Matt leads us, if you have a decision to make, step out now and meet me here in the front.